Today, we discuss the desire from the left to label everything a public health crisis, a prime example of blatant hypocrisy from the Black Lives Matter organization, and we stress the importance of upholding our Constitution. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Happy Saturday, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. I hope you all have had a fantastic week. Thank you so much for tuning in with me today. It's an honor to be able to speak with you about these important topics. If you have listened to the show for any length of time, thank you so much for being on the journey with me. I pray that the show continues to be a helpful resource and a blessing to you. As always, if you do enjoy the show, make sure that you share the show with your community and your friends and family. Make sure you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. You can follow me on Instagram at Real Michael Seifert. Also, for all other information, you can head to my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. All right, friends, we have a lot that I want to cover today, so I want to jump right in. You know, normally on the show, I conduct the episodes by having us cover about three or four stories per episode. Sometimes I just do one topic, like our last episode where we talked about Georgia's voting law and some of the implications of that law and some of the key takeaways. Today, what I want to do is I actually want to give you five current event stories, but I'm going to fly through these in rapid format, where essentially I share with you the five major breaking stories happening around the country that I thought, you know what, we definitely need to cover before the week is out. Actually, one of the stories comes to us from Canada. So North America, I should say, not just the country. And I want to give you one key takeaway per story. So we're going to mix it up a little bit today. Five current event stories in sort of a high-level format with one key takeaway each. All right? Three, two, one. Here we go. So first story, I want to tell you about a concerning new political development related to the Supreme Court. I want to read you a piece. This is Ryan Savidra reporting. A political power grab. Biden creates commission to study packing the Supreme Court. Democrat President Joe Biden announced on Friday that he has created a commission to study packing the Supreme Court and leftist agenda items related to the nation's highest court. The New York Times reported that Biden made the decision to move forward with studying the highly controversial partisan action which the majority of Americans oppose because he was, quote, under pressure from activists. The commission will be led by two left-wing partisans who served in the Obama administration. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley said it was, quote, not a good sign that the commission was, quote, notably stacked on one side. No surprise there. Court packing is so toxic that even socialist Bernie Sanders does not support it. And he's even warned that if Democrats do it, then, quote, the next time the Republicans are in power, they'll do the same thing. I would actually disagree with Bernie on that piece. Um, I'm glad he's taking a stance against court packing, but I, I don't agree that if Republicans were in power, they'd do the same thing because it's kind of a core tenet of Republicanism, of conservatism to conserve things that are not broken. And a nine member Supreme Court is not broken. So don't fix it. Um, the only reason you'd be adding members to that court is because you desire for your political agenda to be forced on Americans. Leftist Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, a registered Democrat, warned this week during a speech at Harvard that packing the court will diminish, quote, confidence in the courts and in the rule of law itself, which will lead to, quote, diminishing the court's power, including its power to act as a check on the other branches. He is absolutely right. Not a huge fan of Stephen Breyer's ideology, but he is spot on here, and I'm glad he's taking a stance against it. Even leftist Supreme Court justice, uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, warned against packing the courts, saying it will make the court appear more partisan and will trigger a constant expansion of the courts every time there's a power change in D.C. 
Mike Davis, founder and president of the Article 3 Project, warned that Biden's move was, quote, alarming and must be met with the harshest of denunciations from both sides of the aisle because packing the Supreme Court would lead to irreversible damage. Mike is absolutely right. Packing the Supreme Court would destroy centuries of hard work from Democrat and Republican appointed justices to insulate the high court from partisan politics. And by the way, the Supreme Court already struggles with this. Over the last three decades, especially as the left has sort of embraced this progressive style of uh, judicial philosophy, where essentially the Constitution is supposed to adapt with the times, and the Constitution has a sort of moral relativist lens we can look at it through. I mean, the left has sort of embraced justices that see the Constitution this way. That's why somehow they get a right to an abortion constitutionally out of the 14th Amendment, which is nonsense. But that is what they've embraced. Because of that, the Supreme Court has become a weaponized tool used by the executive branch, sometimes even the legislative branch, to do their political bidding. Um, and that's a real shame. And that's why, again, that's why something I value about conservatism is that we want originalist justices, justices that don't make decisions based upon their political opinions. They make decisions judicially based upon what does the Constitution actually say. Don't try to derive some secret meaning that fits in with the times. What does the Constitution say? What were they meaning when they wrote it? That's really, really important. Um, so all that to say, let me keep running with this story here. Representative Bill Huizanga, um, a Republican from Michigan, called Biden's move nothing more than a political power grab, while Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, warned that uh, Democrats were willing to destroy our institutions to seize power. Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas warned, this is not a drill anymore. The left is coming for everything. Now, there's some fear-mongering there, of course, but at the end of the day, um, they're not wrong. I mean, what's so interesting is that, you know, in fact, this is interesting. Daily Caller editor-in-chief Joffrey Ingersoll wrote, it's pretty interesting to me that for all the media bluster about Trump being a, di a dictator, it appears as if Biden's sprinting to reshape the country in ways that truly cement power for progressives. And the media, they're cheering it on. This, this is really fascinating. You know, Trump was called a dictator, a fascist. And at the end of the day, he didn't do half of what Biden is doing when it comes to pushing through a, an agenda through executive orders, considering radical new changes to the country. I mean, that that was not Trump's presidency. And so people yelled and screamed that he was some sort of dictator about things like the border. And now the border's worse than it's ever been. March was the worst month for border crossings illegally in United States history. So I, I this this whole notion... You know, it's interesting. There's actually a quote that I want to tell you on the front end, because we're going to bring up this quote a few times throughout this episode. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So Solzhenitsyn, obviously, um, if you're familiar with him, he wrote the uh, Gulag Archipelago. Highly recommend that book. It's very difficult to read because um, it's just heartbreaking. But he was in the thick of it um, during the, uh, the worst of communism in the uh, Soviet Union under Stalin. And he said, they lie to us. We know they're lying. They know, we know they're lying, but they keep lying to us. Let me repeat that again. They lie to us. We know they're lying. They know, we know that they're lying, but they keep lying to us. And when you have the media that is an, a, a political propaganda arm, you're able to just lie as much as you want because you know the media will cover up for you. And that's exactly what we're seeing with all of these radical proposals being uh, even suggested that six months ago, they lied about. They said, no, 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 we, you don't deserve to know Biden's opinion on court packing. Remember that? I remember that. Biden said, you don't deserve to know my opinion on court packing. And then a few weeks later, he says, oh, wait, no, 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 I'm actually not for it. And now he's doing a 180-day commission studying the potential of court packing. So 
This move by the Biden administration comes at the same time that a far left group that belongs to a dark money organization launched a campaign to force Stephen Breyer to retire. The group Demand Justice launched an online petition that demands that Breyer retires because it's time for a black Supreme Court justice, a black woman Supreme Court justice. Have to get more intersectional here. The group said that it was officially worrisome that Justice Breyer has not said yet that he will step down and declared that Justice Breyer is not entitled to the benefit of the doubt at this point. So a progressive group is coming after a leftist Supreme Court justice because he's not far left enough. At the same time, on the same day that Biden launches this 180-day commission to um, to pursue potentially expanding the Supreme Court, and not only that, that also comes at the same time that Stephen Breyer actually speaks out against it. So none of this smells good, ultimately. And I hope and pray for some moderation in the conversation. I pray that a Joe Manchin from West Virginia, for example, these Democrat senators that are in swing states or even red states, that they would stand up and speak out against this and would say, no, no, no. If it actually came to a vote, there's no possible way that we are going to radically alter the country in this way. Remember, nine member, uh, nine justice Supreme Court has been in place for over 100 years. 1930s, uh, FDR tried to do this in order to really push through his New Deal initiatives. And he failed, thankfully, because that was a bad idea then just like it's a bad idea now. This shouldn't even be a topic of conversation. If something is not broken, do not fix it. We've got enough stuff that is broken in our country that we should worry about fixing. A nine-justice Supreme Court is purely a political um, motive that is driving this conversation. I remember, I'm going to say this again, Biden, during the campaign, tried to appeal to the moderate base. First said, you know, I'm going to waffle on this issue. You don't deserve to know my opinion on Supreme Court packing. Then said, ah, no, I'm not really a fan of it. He was just trying to say whatever was necessary based upon what the polls were saying in the final few weeks before the presidency. But he had no intention of actually going through with anything he was saying at that time. And honestly, I believe that more of that has to do with the fact Rather than than Biden really having a, a strong, sinister agenda here, I don't believe that's the case. I actually believe Biden doesn't really know what he's doing. And I believe Biden is more of just a sort of puppet figure, a, a puppet president for a much more radical agenda that's operating behind the scenes. That's not me making fun of Biden, uh, but I'm going to be honest, he's not there. He's not there. He doesn't make these decisions. I mean, in the first week of his presidency, when that video came out and he was sitting at the table... And Kamala was standing up next to him and he was signing executive orders and the camera was really hot or the microphone was really hot, excuse me. And so it picked him up actually saying, what am I signing here? I don't even know what I'm signing here. And Kamala just says, just sign it. And I think it was a very telling moment of where we're actually at in this Biden-Harris administration, which, by the way, they are formally calling themselves now the Biden-Harris administration on all correspondence. And that is a break from tradition. Um, And I think, again, it shows exactly what's going on behind the scenes, that Biden isn't really doing anything. I'm not a fan of Biden's politics. I'm not a fan of his ideology. But at the end of the day, um, I'm not even concerned as much about him. I'm concerned about who's behind the scenes that are pulling the strings on Biden, what he signs, what he moves through. Again, it's so interesting that Trump was called the dictator, and yet Biden is pushing through some of the most radical um, executive actions of any president in the last few decades. So wild stuff. My key takeaway is ultimately that we need to pray for the preservation of what makes the judicial system, the justice system in our country, a nonpartisan entity that can serve as a check and a balance for the rest of the government, the legislative and the executive branch. I think that that is very, very important. I think the Supreme Court should pursue originalist justices, like I mentioned, that interpret the Constitution as written. I also think we should be praying for this commission. It's 180 days. We're going to know the results of that. They have some real power players on this commission that have a very strong progressive agenda that really want to just uproot this entire country and what makes it special. Um, so let's let's pray. Let's pray that that um, does not avail 
Let's pray that this does not lead to what people on this commission likely hope it leads to. Let's pray that we have some senators on the Democratic side that actually stand up and say, we, we just won't go with this. Um, this is something that's not even worth our time. Let's pray for more people like Bernie Sanders that are willing to stand out and say something about it. That's my key takeaway. Let's pray. For the next 180 days, this is a, a big commission. And to me, it's a troubling sign of the times. And I am praying for a result at the end of the 180 days where they've gotten so much blowback um, from even people with on their, within their own side that they say, all right, you know what? This was, this was pointless. This is not going to work. It's never going to work. All right, so that's enough of that. Let's head to the second story here. This is a wild one. Black Lives Matter co-founder buys $1.4 million home in virtually all-white area. <laughs> After reports that a $1.4 million home in a secluded area of Los Angeles, whose population is reportedly less than 2% black, was sold to one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, some black conservative commentators took her to task. On Wednesday, Dirt.com reported a secluded mini compound tucked into LA's rustic and semi-remote Topanga Canyon was recently sold for a tad more than $1.4 million to a corporate entity that public records show is controlled by Patrice Kahn Coolers, 37-year-old social justice visionary and co-founder of the galvanizing and, for some, controversial Black Lives Matter movement. By the way, quick pause here. Black Lives Matter raised $90 million last year. Can anyone give me one example of how that money has gone to help a black community? I can't find any. I can't find one example. In fact, many black communities right now are very frustrated with Black Lives Matter. A lot of interviews have been conducted where people, business owners in minority communities say, we can't stand this organization because they egged on some of the riots that ended up destroying minority communities this past summer and fall and then got praised for it and seen as some sort of social justice champion. The reality is the Marxists are the same as the Marxists have always been. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the mid-20th century, the Marxists were really focused on seizing the means of production, never to actually help anyone. That's a common misconception. Some people are tempted into buying Marxist thought because they believe that it somehow helps people. It doesn't at all. It never has and it never will. And that's not even their goal. The goal is to seize power. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, the mid-20th century, you see Marxists campaigning on economics. They believe that the proletariat should overthrow the bourgeois because people should all be equal or equitable in their economic status. Now, today, the Marxists are the same as they've always been, but they focus on intersectionality because that will pull on the heartstrings of the polis. And so, a hundred years ago, what pulled on the heartstrings of the population was this conversation around economics. Now, today, the conversation is geared toward intersectionality, and you have a bunch of people, even Christians, that have bought into this Black Lives Matter movement and don't realize the blatant truth sitting right in front of them. And this is my key takeaway here, that they've been played. Black Lives Matter played this country over the last year. We have been played. They fooled us. They bamboozled us. It was an absolute sham unfolding right in front of our face. They encouraged violence, encouraged destruction of minority communities raised $90 million that did not go back in to help communities. They're very quiet about where they spend their money. So there's a lot of questions. They're not doing anything publicly where they really make a difference in these minority communities. Sure as heck, not as much as $90 million would assume. And then their founder, a self-proclaimed Marxist, goes out and buys a $1.4 million home in one of the whitest areas of Southern California. So ultimately, we got played. The country got played. And I, I just so hope and pray that people will wake up and focus on not just buying into every little media narrative, anything that's culturally popular in the moment, any little movement that seems like it's the loving thing to buy into, and actually look at situations for what they are. Recognize that the devil's in the details these days, and there are movements that capitalize on people's false sense of compassion.
And Black Lives Matter, ultimately, the organization is a perfect example of that. So hopefully we learn our lesson for the future so we don't get played again. All right, what I want to do now is I want to read you a piece from Chrissy Clark. She's a journalist that actually made this weekly column called Education Insanity, and it updates us on the most insane events taking place in our nation's schools. And so I want to read you this piece. This is volume 10. This one stood out to me just because of the absurdity of some of these stories. But I want to give you 10 stories that have been taking place in our education system in the last week alone. Let's get started. Number 10 that Chrissy highlights. Uh, There was a video that was released by the College Fix Um, A University of Miami black law student leader posted on Instagram a video of her admitting that she, quote, hates white people. The university has refused to comment on the video. According to University of Miami students, several students have filed complaints against the law student in the past. The university has ignored these concerns as well. No surprise there. So University of Miami black law student says that she hates white people. And that gets overlooked by the university. Can you imagine if the races were reversed? This is an awful thing to say. And it's just going backwards. It's it's really sad. University of Illinois, Chicago stops identifying suspect races in crime alerts to avoid stereotypes. So this is Young America's Foundation reporting. The University of Illinois, Chicago campus police have eliminated any references to a suspect's race, ethnicity, and national origin in public safety warnings in hope of eliminating potential negative perpetuations of stereotypes. An email obtained by the Young America's Foundation reads, Effective January 2021, the university will no longer routinely use race, ethnicity, or national origin as a descriptor in public safety advisories. This is wild. How are you supposed to tell what someone looks like? Are the campus warnings now just going to say, alert everyone, we have a non-binary, non-gender conforming um, person who we don't want to be ableist, so we won't share their height. We also won't share their color because we don't want to sound racist. So just so you know, there is a human being walking the campus somewhere. We're not going to tell you what they look like, but they're armed and dangerous. How on earth will this work? This is, this is when wokeism absolutely robs our brain of any bit of common sense. Number eight, University of Nevada says white students can't live in minority dorm communities for safety of residents. The University of Nevada, Reno, has created segregated dorm communities for students of color only. White students at UNR are not allowed to live in the segregated dorms for the safety of student participants. The school has three minority-only communities, one for Latinx students, one for indigenous students, and another for black scholars. So here's the University of Nevada literally practicing segregation. And then wearing that as a badge of honor. Again, we are going back in time. This is crazy. Number seven, the University of Pennsylvania professor condemns, quote, white evangelicals for not taking the vaccine as a public health issue. A University of Pennsylvania professor joined MSNBC's Joy Reid, where she claimed that religious exemptions for the coronavirus vaccine are a public health issue. Reid claimed that white evangelical resistance is considered a public health problem. Golly, the professor agreed and said that countless people would die as religious organizations opt not to vaccinate. I'm going to take a quick pause here because I think there's an important thing to point out. Listen to this statement. Joy Reid, MSNBC commentator, millions of people listen to this woman, claimed that white evangelical resistance is considered a public health problem. And the reason I want to point that out is because look at what they've done in the last year to destroy the United States based upon a public health problem. You're going to see this term used a lot more because they found out what they can get away with when they call something a public health crisis. It's why we've seen the climate conversation start to be intertwined with public health. It's why we've seen racism classified as a public health problem, even out of the CDC. The CDC last week came out and said that they are now classifying racism as a public health crisis. 
You're going to see everything called a public health crisis now because they have learned over the past year, if we claim something is a public health crisis, we can literally uproot American society. We can shut down thousands of small businesses for months on end and no one will challenge us on it. We can keep millions of people out of church and it's no problem. They won't even challenge us on it. So we're fine. Let's use public health crisis. In fact, I've talked about this on the show before. There are some organizations that are starting to call for climate lockdowns, where we actually put society on pause for six months to allow our uh, carbon emissions to dwindle. This is crazy. So anytime you start to see public health issue, recognize these buzzwords like equity, start to see public health issue um, in terms of the details of the actual conversation. What are they actually talking about? Don't just skim by that sentence. Really dig into, is what they are calling a public health issue actually related in any form or fashion to public health? They talk about climates or racism or whatever it might be. These things are, um, some of them are problems. Of course, racism is a problem, but a public health crisis? No, no, no. You're saying that because you want to be able to use this as a weaponized tool to enact the same sort of level of authoritarian power that you did over the last year. You want to do that again. So number six, many school districts refusing to commit to in-person reopening in the fall as teachers unions continue to move the goalposts. School districts across the country are refusing to commit to fully reopening for in-person learning for the fall. According to a report from the Washington Post, some schools are planning for hybrid systems that combine in-person and remote learning because children will not be vaccinated, though nearly every teacher will be. Schools are also unsure whether they will allow extracurricular activities such as choir and sports to continue. I'll get too frustrated if I talk about this for too long, but ultimately this is despicable. We should abolish teachers' unions. I can't even stomach the harm that we're doing to kids and, and there's just no repercussions for it. They're able to just keep getting away, f- away with it. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Half the country is just asleep at the wheel. We're not even paying attention. And we're not truly holding these people accountable. And our kids are the ones suffering for it. And to the teachers' unions, it's out of sight, out of mind. They don't even care. Because actually taking care of the kids is not the goal. Increasing their power and their standing is the goal. So... I'm going to move on from that, but we are all aware of how problematic the teachers unions are, I think, now by this point. It's just a matter of how do we actually hold these people accountable? And the only way that's going to happen is if the other side wakes up where the teachers unions are actually beholden to those people and they say, you know what? We recognize how destructive of a force teachers unions truly are. Our kids are the ones that are suffering from it and their mental health, their future color scholarships. We are literally removing them from any social interaction, uh, continuing to suggest that we should do so. That is utter insanity. Like, we got to stop. So anyways, I won't go down too much of a rabbit hole. Number five, Cornell University mandates COVID-19 vaccines for students and staff. By the way, Notre Dame is doing this as well. Leadership at Cornell University announced that students and staff must be vaccinated in order to to return to campus in the fall. In a press release, University President Matha Pollack and Provost Michael Kotlikoff announced that Cornell would become the next school to make a return to campus contingent upon vaccination. This is problematic in more ways than one. I talked about the uh, vaccine passports last week. Make sure to go listen to that episode if you have not yet. We talked about this a bit of the problems of forcing vaccine or vaccines on a um, on a corporate level like this. And I I just can't even fathom for the kids that were planning on going to Cornell or still are and they have problems with the vaccine, even if they're not someone who's um, pretty traditionally against vaccines. They're someone who's just said, you know what, this is not even approved by the FDA yet. I'd rather wait until we're not just an emergency use authorization, but we've had a little more time to observe the long-term effects of this vaccine. I'd rather wait for that because I'm a 21-year-old male. I'm healthy. I don't have any pre-existing conditions and there's no reason for me to get vaccinated. There are going to be a lot of college kids that have that perspective. And yet, what are they supposed to do now? What are they supposed to do? What about those that, like myself, have 
allergies to a lot of medication. If I take an aspirin, I will keel over right here in my living room while I'm recording this. What am I supposed to do if I was planning on going to Cornell? What's the game plan there? Or Notre Dame, or these schools that are starting to force this? It's totalitarian. It's authoritarian. It is so weird. It's Orwellian. It's like these people have never read 1984, and they need to. So anyways, that's Cornell University mandating COVID-19 vaccines for students and their staff. Next story, number four, Florida State University class on the history of Karen uses KKK photo to promote class on, quote, white womanhood. A flyer for a class at Florida State University promoted the class History of Karen, which will provide the or it will examine the weaponizing of white womanhood. The poster featured a quote from the New York Times columnist Charles Blow, which reads, The activation of white terror is a white woman's soft power. We like to masculinize white supremacy, to presume it reeks of testosterone, when in fact, it is just as likely to be spritzed by perfume. This is such an interesting story for me. This is a perfect example of the logic when it's fully carried out of intersectionality. So Florida State University has got this class basically teaching that white womanhood is part of the white supremacy issue. So, you you know, in the world of intersectionality, white straight men are absolutely the worst. Like, if you are a white straight man, you are the, the scum of society to the progressive. But just after that are white straight women. Because at least white straight women, you've got one intersectional point um, on the points classification. You get to claim that at least you're a woman. So you've got some oppression points. But ultimately, you're going to be the next to go. So the world of intersectionality is a wacky one, and that's a whole other episode for another time. But the way they classify their point system is so interesting. So um, yeah, now it's not enough to go after white straight men. They got to go after white straight women as well. LA teachers want free childcare before returning to in-person learning. This is uh, story number three. I'm going to read that again. Oh my gosh. LA teachers want free childcare before returning to in-person learning. How does that have anything to do with COVID? A Los Angeles teachers union is demanding that teachers be given free childcare before returning to in-classroom instruction. The demand, which came from the United Teachers of Los Angeles, wants educators with young children to continue working from home until the district can provide them subsidized childcare and a proper childcare program for teachers by fall. So now they're just using this again, guys, they're using this public health crisis as a political tool that has nothing to do with COVID. How does that have anything to do with COVID? They didn't have that level of uh, free subsidized childcare before COVID. So they're literally just using this now as an opportunity to get free stuff. And they're holding kids hostage in the meantime. So yet another perfect example of why we should abolish teachers unions. All right. Uh, number two story. Remember, this is dwindling down from 10 to one. So number two, high school track coach fired after refusing to make his team wear masks. Bradley Keyes, a New Hampshire high school track and field coach, was fired after refusing to tell his team that they had to wear masks when they competed. Keyes issued a blog post encouraging parents to tell the school they opposed the masking policy. In an email to the school, Keyes wrote, I'll come straight to the point. I will not put kids on the track and tell them to run any races while wearing masks. I will not stand up in front of the kids and lie to them and tell them that these masks are doing anything worthwhile out in an open field with wind blowing and sun shining. Amen. Thankful for this track coach. Unfortunately, he was fired. So that shows you exactly where the school's head was at. This, this, uh, this high school track coach preaches common sense in a way, actually, that will benefit the kids more than anyone. And yet he gets canned for it. That's a real bummer. All right. Number one story. This is one of the craziest. Um, I don't know if it's the craziest out of the 10, but it, it's certainly up there. Portland activists say Evergreen is a, quote, tree of death. A school in Portland, Oregon, delayed a vote to adopt an evergreen tree as its mascot because some board of education members feared the mascot would be reminiscent of lynching. The school is in the process of changing its Trojan mascot. The mascot renaming committee 
Why do you have a committee for renaming a mascot? Quick pause there. But anyways, uh, proposed the evergreen for its life-giving force. However, another committee member said he understood how others could see the symbol as a tree of death. Here's my massive takeaway. Well, really, there's two. The first is this. Um, please go run for your school boards. Please, please, please go run for your school boards. Carry the light, the love, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ onto your school boards. Stand up for truth and righteousness because our kids are the ones that are suffering from all of the 10 crazy stories that I just mentioned to you. And you guys can have a part in seeing that actually change for the better. The second thing is this. People are manufacturing pain in this modern era that they have never experienced because it's now culturally popular to do so. It is popular to be a victim. And the progressive culture has created that. And it's so harmful to the next generation because we're raising these kids to inherently have this animosity toward anyone that looks different than them, to, to not trust anybody with less melanin in their skin. I mean, it is racism. It's creating racism in society where you're encouraging kids to see the whole world as out to get them and then to segregate themselves off in society in order to protect their feelings. That is absolutely wild. The goal is not equality anymore. It's not that we would not see each other based upon the color of our skin, but instead that we'd see each other based upon the content of our character. That now is seen as a racist view today, which is why they don't quote Martin Luther King Jr. anymore. They don't quote the I Have a Dream speech. They quote Marxists that don't want equality. They want an equitable takeover of power in society. And sadly, millions of Americans don't see the difference. And so they're just running right along with it. And it's our kids that are going to suffer the most from that. So that's my key takeaway there. Let's go to the fourth story. You guys remember the Canadian pastor, James Coates, who I've talked about over the past few weeks, who was put in jail for simply holding church services over his capacity limit um, because of the COVID restrictions. They placed a 15% capacity limit on his church in Canada in the winter. So first of all, a church in Canada in the winter in Edmonton cannot go outside and host outdoor services like we can here in San Diego. Secondly, 15% is not a capacity restriction. That's literally your church staff. That's not a church service. So this was just a joke all along. It was the local officials trying to say, hey, we said you could do something inside. And in reality, it's like, well, no, you really didn't because 15% is not actually holding a church service. But we have an update for you. This is CBN News. Church responds as police barricade sanctuary while pastor awaits trial for breaking COVID orders. Listen to the update to the story here. This is crazy. With the help of law enforcement authorities, a government health agency of unelected officials has placed a barrier around a church in Alberta, Canada, effectively closing down the place of worship. I'm going to read that again. With the help of law enforcement authorities, a government health agency of unelected officials, bureaucrats, has placed a barrier around a church in Alberta, Canada, effectively closing down the place of worship. Guys, if you could see these pictures, it's crazy. Literally, the local health officials with police officers came and set up this massive barrier around the church, keeping people out. So I just, I'm praying for this church, for Grace Life. I'm praying for this pastor. They've been through so much over the last few months for simply standing up for truth, for standing up for the Hebrews 10.25 to not neglect gathering together. They have prioritized gathering together in the faith, worshiping the Lord in community, and they have been... Uh, absolutely condemned for it by the government. It's heartbreaking. I cannot believe that this is happening in a North American country. And I want to read you actually an Instagram post from his wife because I thought it was sobering. Um, so from the pastor's wife, Aaron Coates, I thought it was sobering. I thought it was also um, very hopeful in tone, even while they are going through such a difficult time. She read, this is what happens when you have freedom of religion in a free and democratic society. They jail your pastor for freely opening the doors of the church and serving Christ's sheep and hurting people. 
So she's obviously pointing out here that how how hypocritical for Canada to pride itself on its uh, freedom of religion or its its respect for individual liberties when they are jailing a pastor for opening the doors of a church. Now they've chained the doors of Grace Life Church and closing in chain link fence. This is all under guise of a health order. Too bad the church isn't a building. It's a blood-bought people. Christ has and will prevail. We have an enemy, and that enemy has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Christ. For all those who find satisfaction in this, you cannot stop the gospel. The name of Jesus Christ will go forth with even more power and conviction. The word of God will sound out across this nation, accomplishing all the work God has ordained to glorify himself. I pray for all the pastors and Christians that still think that this is about a virus and a health order. Clearly, our charter and criminal code mean nothing as long as the government can come up with a good enough story to disregard it. God have mercy on our nation. I pray for their souls. They are clearly under your judgment. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is Psalm 2, by the way. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and with and rejoice with trembling. Do a homage to the son that... He not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So that was Aaron Coates' message, shared that beginning paragraph about what they've gone through and the hope of Jesus Christ that they are clinging to in the season. And it also shared a reminder of God's heart for justice and his heart for truth and nations recognizing the truth from Psalm 2. So, I wanted to give you the update, guys. There, I, you know, he got released from church, or, or excuse me, released from jail early on March 29th, I believe it was. Let's see here. Yep, he was released from jail on March 29th. He was originally supposed to be in till May, but he spent a month behind bars, which is crazy. He's still awaiting trial in May, and so um, we ought to just pray for this pastor, pray for Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada. Um, freedom and conscience and religion is the first fundamental freedom listed in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That was said by John Carpe, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, the law firm representing the church. I, I wanted to finish with this. It is listed first because it is one of the key bedrock principles on which Canada is built. The government has, so far, refused to justify the limits on worship and gathering. Health orders are inconsistent, differing from province to province, and arbitrarily created by one public health official who is under no obligation legally to advise the legislatures of the science and rationale which supposedly are the basis of the orders. We ought to pray for this church. We ought to pray for common sense, reason, and wisdom to overwhelm those that have sinister agendas when it comes to uh, shutting down this church and churches like it. All right, last story. Well, actually, let me give you my key takeaway there. First of all, pray, but also, if you don't think... This type of authoritarian craziness can happen in the West on a larger scale. Think again. Like, th if we don't stop this now, it's not going to stop. In fact, another quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, when he was uh, asked to address um, the kind of key takeaway from the, uh, the time of the Soviet Union suffering under communism and how it got to that point, he simply said it's because we didn't love freedom enough. And so we do not want to be a people that are caught 10 years down the road um, in a situation where we're saying we didn't love freedom enough. We didn't respect people's liberty enough. 
And so we let this happen on our watch. We do not want to be people to do that. So let's get involved in the community. Let's not be naive about the authoritarian craziness that is starting to spread here. Let's take this story out of Canada as an example. Let's not believe, oh, that can never happen in the U.S. It absolutely can. And unless we hold fast to absolute truth, unless we, uh, unless we confront moral relativism, and unless we confront the desire that many in our society have to fundamentally alter the way our country works, this becomes a very realistic possibility. Authoritarianism on a massive scale becomes uh, not only a possibility, but a probability. In fact, I, I want to read you guys a story to finish off this. Um, this is quick, but Joe Biden declares no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. It's one of the most Probably one of the most shocking things I've heard any president say in the past few decades. President Joe Biden declared Thursday that, quote, no amendment is absolute while unveiling a series of executive actions targeting American citizens' Second Amendment right. Today, we are taking steps to confront not just the gun crisis, but what is actually a public health crisis, Biden announced in a speech at the White House's Rose Garden, claiming nothing, nothing I'm about to recommend in any way infringes, I think is what he meant, on the Second Amendment. But then he says, no amendment, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. So two dangerous things here. First of all, again, he calls anything that he doesn't like a public health crisis when literally more people have died from stairs in the past decade than from mass shootings. Um, but that doesn't matter to the president and it doesn't matter to the media because they're going to promote this regardless. But the, the kicker here is what he said about the amendment. No amendment is absolute. This is a very dangerous road to go down because what he's essentially saying is that we as a country are led more by what we perceive is right in the moment rather than this document that is on paper that we have committed to upholding. It is our guide when we talk about legislation and how we conduct our country. Obviously, that's subject to the Lord. We all know that. But at the end of the day, what Biden is saying is that it's not enough to look at the Second Amendment. It's not enough to look at the First Amendment. We also have to go beyond that and address the public health crisis of the day. That is what ex has excused um, very unconstitutional lockdown measures of the last year. We have seen this past year how few some people value the Constitution. And if they don't value it now, they won't value it in a decade when the situation is more dire. If they don't value it in this past season... Why would we be surprised if they come and put a barricade up around a church, arrest pastors, put them in jail for months on end? Why would we be surprised if I don't value this absolute constitution that binds us to one another and binds us to a common set of values? Why would I value it any time in the future? So I think that, that the president's statement this week should be seen as a massive wake-up call. That is, my, um, that is my key takeaway there. So with that being said, friends, we flew through some good stories today. We've got a big week of episodes next week, which I'm really looking forward to. Thank you so much for joining me this week. It has been a blast to chat with you guys about these important political, cultural, and faith issues. With all that said, I hope you have a fantastic rest of the weekend. Thanks for tuning in. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Thank you.